This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. All right, welcome back, everyone. It's been a little while. I'm excited to be back behind the microphone. We're post-match, so some congratulations are in order to our esteemed Northwestern host, Stan, who matched at Emory. Uh, thank you so much, man. KG, always good to see you, as always. I'm joined by my OG co-student, Lauren Smith. Hi, everyone. It's really good to be back. Really excited to, to be back post-match and have all of that kind of uncertainty behind us and excited to have some upcoming M4s with us today. We were just talking, we've got to expand our podcast to some new locations, yep. so Dan will be in Atlanta and then I'll be at MGH in Boston, so exciting things coming up. Yep. And then we have a returning guest and huge supporter of the podcast, Dr. Didwania, and congrats to him too on Northwestern. <laughs> we're really excited. I want to get the moniker OG for <laughs> program director. <laughs> the OG program director is yeah. true. It's my 11th going on 12th year. I'm getting close to OG, but it's great to be back. This is such a fabulous podcast, and to work with the two of you, so congrats to both of you, you, Daniel and Lauren, and nice to work with the two newbies and rising Ooh, stars. No, KJ, I'm not going to lie, it's a little cold outside, but it's getting real toasty in here. We got two superstar M3s. Well, you know, we are so excited to have you guys on. You know, we, It's going to be such to hear your thoughts. So without further ado, I want our listeners to be introduced to our wonderful M3s. I'll start off with Nathan. Go ahead and tell us who you are, and we'll go from there. All right. Hi, everyone. My name is Nathan Kulapur. I'm a current third-year medical student here at Northwestern, really on the tail end of my third year here, wrapping up my last clerkship, currently on my pediatrics clerkship. So yeah, originally from southeastern Ohio, went to undergrad at the Ohio State University. Mixed reaction from the crowd. That's tough. Uh, that's tough. Hey everyone, my name is Alec Ozhevsky. I'm a third-year medical student, just finished my third-year court clerkships, and I am from Providence, Rhode Island, and I went to Hampshire College for undergrad, and I was a non-traditional student, so I ended up going to a postback program in Bryn Mawr. And here I am now. So we have a 68-year-old man who was in his usual state of health until he suddenly felt strange, became diaphoretic, and then passed out. He woke up seconds later and vomited up bright red blood. So obviously there are a couple different things going on. Uh Yep. What are you guys thinking? What are your first thoughts? So I have my initial thoughts. There's kind of two key presenting symptoms you're going on. You have the syncope, then passing out, and you have Mm -hmm. the hematemesis. Yeah. So... Initial broad buckets I'd be thinking of potential differential would be probably neuro, cardiac, and GI, where I'm thinking or trying to connect these. Yeah. Right. Something that I would add to that. Okay, so we have hematemesis, yeah. as you mentioned. Yeah. And what can kind of unify all of those together? I'm wondering if ETOH is involved. If That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, if there's yeah. either cirrhosis or just esophageal tears from, you know, vomiting so much. Yeah, with the hematemesis, initial thing I'm thinking of, yeah, some sort of esophageal rupture, esophageal tear, you know, maybe like Mallory Weiss or something. Um, right. get the, I assume, I feel you could have the strange feeling di- di- diaphoresis along with that picture. I don't think that would be unreasonable. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm forgetting right now what's the big kind of, I know that having a, a prodrome for syncope is important. Yeah. Dividing some, or for kind of sifting through the differential does make me think of vasovagal for sure. Yeah, with the with mm-hmm. the prodrome. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And then other thing in terms of the syncope and like tying in like cardiac things, I think 
arrhythmias and mm -hmm. could be a driver for syncope. I don't think that would necessarily explain the hematemesis necessarily. There'd be some sort of MI picture going on. I've not heard of hematemesis associated with yeah. that. I'd be curious to hear if there's any other symptoms he's also had right. along this picture. Yeah. Agreed. Actually, that's a great point. Why don't we keep rolling yeah. with that? What other questions would you want to ask this patient? What are some of that information that you think might be helpful? Chest pain, if there's any chest pain, I think that would be, that would be helpful. Going off of alcohol, you know, what, if he's been drinking, what's his sort of substance use habits? Also just questions about GI symptoms as well. If there's, you know, kind of melanin or something like that. And I also got the sense you were trying to characterize what led up to the syncope a little bit more too. Yeah. How you focus on how we think about syncope. Right. Yeah. Also wondering how he felt after this episode, you know, because if you think about something, seizures or something, you want to think about what their awareness is in the post-seizure yeah. post yeah, uh, time frame. Yeah, the fact that he woke, just the wording, he mm -hmm. woke up seconds later, does make me think that it's probably going to be more syncope, but that's a good point because we don't know if he's altered afterwards. Right, yeah. I love that you guys have kind of thought through the differential for syncope because it might be easy to get distracted by this hematemesis. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to connect the two, how would you connect the two? Mm. One other thing to think of, of that we didn't mention would be pulmonary embolism. Okay. That's, I know, a rare cause of syncope, but pulmonary embolism can show up with a bunch of different things, including cough, including theoretically hemoptysis. So hematemesis mimic. Yeah. <laughs> that great? yeah. That's good. But yeah. Keep going. I'm so, wondering if, you know, if he has some sort of esophageal rupture or a tear of the esophagus and if you lose some of the blood, if his blood pressure dropped a lot, maybe yeah. there'd be some orthostatic type picture going on. That's a great thought. Yeah. yeah. So I have that thought too. And you're making a bunch of different connections between the syncope and hematemesis, maybe hemoptysis, but some kind of blood loss. And would that make you mild, medium, or hot in terms of your level of worry? Hot. Yeah, hot. Yeah, hot. Red hot. What's the hottest flavor you get at Taco Bell hot sauce? Oh, uh, yeah. That Diablo. This might be the guy. <laughs> <laughs> Diablo. So, right, because you often think about, you know, when you're seeing a presenting picture of a patient, your instinct as a physician might not always be what's the diagnosis, but it might be what's going to potentially kill this person and how to make sure they don't die in the next couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. And if this is hemorrhage and hemorrhagic shock, you got to act fast. Nice, great work. You know, I, I love, I'm just going to touch on a couple of things that you guys mentioned. Great points. Number one, identifying if the patient is sick or not sick. I think that's such a crucial distinction. And I think you guys nailed it. This patient is very, very sick. I also love that you highlighted there's a syncope component and there's this hematemesis component, both of which need appropriate workup. And I love the questions that you're trying to ask, trying to differentiate why is this happening? What can be united in these two things and where can we go from here? So how about I get you some more information? So for the patient's past medical history, the patient has a history of peptic ulcer disease with a Bill Roth II procedure performed in 1993. They've got a history of hypertension, cholecystectomy, and an umbilical hernia repair. In terms of current medications, they're on hydrochlorothiazide, amlodipine, and multivitamins. For allergies, allergic to iodine. In terms of a social history, there is no alcohol use. They do have a one-pack-per-day history of smoking. They live alone, and they are a clerk at a city court. This patient, in terms of family history, father died of CVA at the age of 67. Mother has congestive heart failure in her 80s and has a brother who does drink. So, it's a lot of information. Anything that stands out to you? I think the no ethanol use is helpful in framing the differential, some of the mm -hmm. things we were thinking about. Some of the Mallory Weiss, I believe, be more common in right. a patient that consumes a lot of alcohol. Yeah. In line with that, esophageal varices was coming to oh, mind. Oh, yeah. There can be other causes of that associated with portal hypertension, maybe. 
But, you know, the of course, the most common thing we think of is cirrhosis due to ETOH overuse. Yeah. Yeah, the... I think key things from the past medical history, peptic ulcer disease, you can get GI bleeding as a result of peptic ulcers. Mm-hmm. So that's something to keep in mind. Bill, I'm not sure what Billy Roth oh, don't worry. is. Oh, but, we'll get into that. Uh, in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> then, uh, yeah. History of hypertension, his smoking history. Something else probably we should definitely have been should be on differential aortic dissection. So, yeah, that's something we do not want to miss. I really like how you both are thinking about those must-not-miss diagnoses. So, for example, in this patient, we talked about esophageal varices. And, Alec, I think it was a great point that you had that we see that this patient doesn't drink alcohol, but there are other causes for cirrhosis. And so that should not immediately necessarily rule that out. So we still want to be worried about this patient. I also feel you guys have kind of honed in on your first kind of differential of causes of upper GI bleed. And Mallory Weiss tear, variceal bleed, peptic ulcer disease, that's the place to be starting. Particularly peptic ulcers and variceal has been the two most common causes of upper GI bleed, right. at least in the U.S. So keep indulging with what else. I mean, the nice thing about GI is it's very anatomic. Yeah. <laughs> And there are mimickers. Maybe it's not coming from the esophagus. Maybe it's coming from the lung and they're coughing it up. Yeah. You know, sometimes we think about, you know, something that they're, they're swallowing the blood and it's coming from the, the nose, the posterior pharynx. So indulge me a little bit more. And by the way, nobody knows what Bill Roth has <laughs> been in med school since, I don't know, at least 2001. But I was in med school up until 2001 and I still saw that procedure. And I know, Dan and Lauren, you might get into this. But I was familiar with that procedure, and that procedure was done in the 80s and 90s as a treatment for peptic ulcer disease because PPIs were still new, hmm. and they hadn't discovered one of the biggest drivers of peptic ulcer disease yet. It was discovered around that time, and I don't know if you're trying to read my mind of what that discovery was. I'll tell you, it's a bacteria. Uh, H. pylori. H. pylori. So understanding that there was an infection driving this anatomic thing was new in the 90s. And once they figure out how to treat and cure H. pylori, that you could give PPIs now over the counter, people didn't need procedures. But I suspect our friends here are going to go through a little bit when that procedure is. <laughs> yeah. So fantastic job, though, thinking about the differential proper GI bleed. You know, this is such a, a great transition. You know, we're thinking about peptic ulcer disease. We're thinking about what are some of the ways that we can address this. And, you know, I love the thought process about, number one, we still have this syncope picture, but we also have this hematemesis. And we're thinking about how does an upper GI bleed fit into this? Where anatomically does this all fit in? So I'd actually do a quick pause and think a little bit more about peptic ulcer disease specifically. So if from your perception, how would you describe peptic ulcer disease? Most commonly caused by H. pylori. And I think it's sort of just an erosion in the mucosa of the stomach. And so I think then you get like sort of acid, maybe it secretes. Yeah, because of that erosion. Well, I think there's maybe the baby's acid produced by the H. pylori versus just the erosion into the stomach mucosa. Yeah, these are all great points. One of the reasons I should just get definitions is just so to make it clearer for all of us. But and I agree with a lot of your points. So in simple terms, peptic ulcer disease, there, as you mentioned, there's some kind of a defect in the mucosa of either the gastric or duodenal wall. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of complications that can arise from that. One of them, you both mentioned, hemorrhage. As you guys mentioned, PUD can often lead to hemorrhage. Obstruction is another one. And of course, perforation if the, uh, if the ulcers right. penetrate through the bowel wall. Yep. So... This is one of the things that we think about, you both mentioned, for this patient with a history of peptic ulcer disease and this new onset of GI bleeding. Now, this patient had a Bill Roth II procedure performed. This is a 
they're definitely something that isn't as routinely done anymore because did Dr. Dwani mentioned, we now know that there are these things, H. pylori, that are contributing to this. But I thought we could do a quick overview of what this procedure is and kind of why it was indicated. So in this procedure, we have normal anatomy here on the left. For those of you who are listening, I would encourage you, if you can, to just, just Google what the Milrock II procedure looks like. It might be a lot easier than me describing this <laughs> over the <laughs> um, But basically, what we're seeing is we have a resection of the distal end of the stomach, and then we have a duodenal stump that is then closed, and there's a re anastomosis of the distal end of the gastrum to the jejunum. So you have this anastomosis at the gastro-duodenal, gastro-jejunal junction, and you have a closure of the stump of the duodenal. So we've got a couple different components going on here, but the goal is to remove the segment of the stomach that has the suspected peptic ulcer disease. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So part of the stomach is still, a, technically still be attached to the proximal duodenum. That's not connected there. So the proximal duodenum actually is not connected to anything in this case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did they just resect the part of the stomach off yeah, of that? Yes, exactly. Oh. exactly. Where the ulcer is, they just take oh. it out. Yes. Well, I want to add a couple things. You can imagine this is a pretty tough surgery. I mean, they've got to do an open procedure. You can imagine complications. And postoperatively, in bariatric surgery, people in stomach suffer from you know, abdominal pain, malabsorption, diarrhea, those kind yeah. of things. And if I, if I could comment on a couple of things that have been stated in the discussion, fabulous discussion is H. pylori is probably causing these ulcers through inflammation and the infection itself. Interestingly, H. pylori produces urea, which is an acid buffer. And so... People with H. pylori, when you treat them, actually be at larger risk for GERD because the urea is buffering the acid, and now you take away the buffer, and that acid can reflux up. So, oddly, with H. pylori, acid might be a mitigating factor, but it's not the driver. It's the, back, it's the infection. In the Billroth, they often ligate the vagal nerve and the resecting part of the stomach that are the acid-producing cells. So, by taking out the vagal nerve, and that section of the stomach, you are dramatically dropping acid production. So it's a different mechanism for H. pylori. You're reducing acid levels, and that's going to reduce future ulceration. Mm -hmm. So back in the day, they would do this for people that were having severe symptoms from peptic ulcer disease, complication of peptic ulcer disease, and things like Tums, calcium, those kind of things that typically buffer the stomach were enough, and they would go to this pretty drastic procedure, yeah. honestly. Yeah. But now the PPIs you know, are ubiquitous. Those are lowering acid levels and fixing the things that um, they were trying to fix anatomically with this procedure. Yeah. But I'll repeat, nobody knows what this procedure is anymore. <laughs> yeah. I'm very glad you're here, Dr. This is very helpful. Yeah, thankfully this is not done routinely anymore because we now have medications that can help address the underlying peptic ulcer disease. But just for our patients, nice to know kind of what was going on and what, what the current anatomy is. So, you ready for some labs, some yeah. exam findings? All right, let's, let, let's get into the exam. All right. So for this patient's vitals, temperature is 96.3, heart rate of 110, mm. respiratory rate of 18, and a blood pressure of 81 over 54. The patient is alert and oriented. Hold on, do you guys have to do this with every case you have? As long as they're the Honestly, we should start. We'll we should have a little jingle after. <laughs> All right, patient's pupils are equal, round, reactive. The oropharynx was clear. The lungs are clear to auscultation. The heart is tachycardic and regular. The abdomen is non-tender, non-distended, positive bowel sounds, and healed surgical scars. The extremities are without edema, pulses are one plus, and neuro is non-focal. What are you guys thinking? The first thing that jumps, jumps out to me is the vital signs, mm -hmm. where this patient's tachycardic, hypotensive. I'm really worried about 
you know, him being volume down. We had the history of, you know, blood and vomit, some sort of hemorrhagic shock, maybe. Yeah, I think the fact that we see the low blood pressure should be very concerning because if that's all from the blood loss, it means he's lost quite a bit of blood. Yeah. Normally, you just initially just see the heart rate jump up, but you don't really see the blood pressure drop until you lose, I think, 30% of your blood. So yeah. he's probably lost quite a bit if we are seeing this hypotension. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It's very important to recognize early on that this patient is in shock. And yeah. I think you guys nailed it. There's a history of hematemesis. The patient most likely is in a hemorrhagic shock situation. Mm -hmm. needs to be addressed. With that being said, what is something, well, what are some things that you would want to order urgently? Or what is information that you think would help you kind of figure out, okay, what are best next steps? Type in screen for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, type of the screen. Yeah, start placing some large bore IVs. Yes. Yeah, great. Um, Any imaging yeah, studies? Image, probably. You think we should go straight to CT? Yeah, a CT, CT here. abdomen, pelvis, yeah, but chest I, as well. Yeah, right. The physical exam is there isn't anything super impressive. There's no tenderness anywhere. Okay. So I don't know if we want to do a fast uh, uh, bedside ultrasound. That is something we can uh, think about just to see if there's any free fluid anywhere. Yeah, I think it's reasonable to do that in the interim as well. Yeah, while we're, while we're getting things teed up yeah. for a CT. Yeah. You guys have thrown out varices as a potential cause of upper yep. GI bleed, right. and now we're thinking a lot about peptic ulcer disease, given this guy's history and given the frequency of it. What exam findings could help you with either of those? I think the abdominal exam, non-distended, points away to, towards some sort of liver pathology involved. It doesn't seem like there's any evidence of ascites, so with that sort of picture... I would say varices probably less likely. What are your thoughts, Alec? One of the things that I am wondering about is that there's no mention of the liver, but if there's hepatomegaly, that would make me, you know, more concerned that something is happening in the liver. If that was mm -hmm. a physical exam. What about some other skin findings that oh. you would want to check for? Oh, thank you for the hint. Yeah, medicine for exactly. Jaundice. Jaundice. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah. But spider angiomatas, yeah, that's yeah. Right. gynecomastia, right. yeah, yeah. So, I think, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, you guys threw it out early, and it was fantastic that you know, worried about alcohol history, doesn't maybe have it, but you're still worried about cirrhosis, and uh, some esophageal varices. Epidemiological disease probably is not going to have any telltale physical exam findings, right? If anything, we talked a lot about H. pylori, we shouldn't forget NSAIDs and pills, mm -hmm. yeah. And we looked at it, we, we saw his pill list. You know, presumably you have an ability to go back and get additional history that he's not down in NSAIDs, either preferably for the last, you know, 10 weeks as another thing. But yeah. looking for signs of cirrhosis in the physical could be very helpful here. It doesn't always got any. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. All right. So I think one of the things that I really liked is some of the things that you were thinking about ordering are really catered to the patient who is in shock. Mm -hmm. You talked about a fast exam. You talked about getting sensitive imaging that will provide us with as much information as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. I think that's a phenomenal thought process. We we got some uh, some different different imaging that we'll walk through, but I'd love to get your thoughts about this. We have a chest x-ray here. So what do you guys think about the left versus right diaphragm? Which one's typically? It's okay if you're not sure. Actually, I, you can guess. It'll be 50-50 chance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I believe sure the, right, right. the right is yeah. higher because the liver. Yeah, yeah. so what is the air? The looks like the side. Yeah. So when you thought, oh, when you're seeing the diaphragm does look like smashed up, that might be true. That might, again, just be the angle of how the, the film's taken. But there's also a little bit of an elevation of that right hemidiaphragm compared to the left. Oh, excuse me. The, the left, left hemidiaphragm yeah, compared yeah. to the right. Right. Yeah. I'm going 50-50. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the left is a little bit higher than the right, and that's a little unusual. So fluid, what else can push up to one side of a diaphragm? 
the left side of the diaphragm. If you get atelectasis, the lungs or something, have some negative pressure. Yeah, that could be true. Well, we don't really see compressed lung there, right? Yeah. Usually you'd see what we could look infiltrate or atelectasis or just consolidation. Yeah. Stomach is there, spleen is there. Okay. So one of the things we talked, you said it was fluid, could also be some sort of active process going on where maybe the stomach is distended. That being said, on this image, I'm not seeing any sort of air sure. in there. Okay. That's enough. You're, you're in the right organ systems to yeah. be thinking about what could push it up. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic work. I think well, one of the key things that I wanted to highlight, which you all did wonderfully, is thinking about anatomically what, what organs are where and how we can present on a chest x-ray. You, you nailed it. The liver can tend to push up the right hemidiaphragm. And in this case, we're seeing the left is a little bit higher. What does that mean? Just things to keep in mind, which, great, you guys hit, hit that very well. All right, let's get you some labs. All right. Nice. So in terms of the patient's labs, we have a white blood cell count of 22, a 22% a neutrophil, 56% lymphocytes. 19 monocytes and 13, 3% basophils, hemoglobin of 11.1, platelet of 225, sodium of 140, potassium of 3.9, chloride 108, bicarb 25, UN 41, creatinine 1.3, glucose 171, lactate 2.1. We did PT-INR, PT is 14, INR is 1, PTT is 36. And with fluids, the hemoglobin is now shown to be 8, with the white blood cell count of 6,000, six, 6, and a platelet of, of 90K. So... A lot of labs, a lot of numbers. Yeah, well. What, what are your thoughts? What are, you, what are you reading? What are you thinking? One of the first things that jumps out to me is the BUN being 41 compared to creatinine of 1.3, which is also somewhat elevated, but not as much. And I have no idea why this is, but I just remember from somewhere in the recesses of my mind that with peptic ulcer disease, often you have an elevated BUN. Other yeah. things, well... I mean, that might make sense, I guess, as the, yeah. the eighth calories urea producing. Maybe that could drive up the urea. Oh, nice. I like I that. I don't know if that's I what like happens that thought. Or not, but, yeah, that's um, cool. Yeah, other things I'm thinking. So I have initial CBC. Actually, hemoglobin 11, um, that's better than what I would have right. anticipated. I diluted to eight. So yeah, it makes me wonder if your initial is concentrated, and that's why you're seeing it artificially yep. elevated. In terms, the white count 22, that I think is interesting in terms of differential, maybe. But one thing that has made me think of is there's some type of uh, malignancy picture could be going on, because I know H. pylori can be associated with the malt lymphoma. So that could be maybe something we're thinking about. In terms of the chemistries, NI gap seven. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. Another thing with the hemoglobin of 11.1, down to eight. I, I think you're right. There can be a dilutional component yeah. of it. The fact that the white blood cell count went from 22 to six, though, that's, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's a big difference. Another thing, though, is hemoglobin. If it's an acute bleed, you may not see hemoglobin drop. Yeah, yeah. hemoglobin drop as dramatically as you would do it, right? Yeah. So maybe there's some of that going on as well. Yeah. So I have a question for you both. We saw this patient's vitals. You're in the emergency room. This is your patient. Are you giving blood? Yes. Yes. Even with the hemoglobin of eight. Right, what's our usual? Oh, normally stack less than six. Yeah, or... it's 6.5, six, something like that. It changes based on how much yeah. blood we have available. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Usually seven. Okay. Oh, I'm sure they'd say 6.5. Right. But we're seeing but you're such also a... telling me this person's maybe in hemorrhagic shock, right? Yeah, we're yeah. seeing such a precipitous decline over not a very long period of time that getting blood. 
on board sounds like a good plan. I think you're right on track, right? Clinically, you're worried about this patient. Even though the hemoglobin isn't at that transfusion threshold, we know that this patient lost blood. They were throwing up blood. So I think you're thinking about it. Great. Exactly right, Lauren. I mean, guiding these guys, and you guys have been on it. All of the cell lines went down, so there's definitely some hemo concentration, yeah. which adds to the idea that this might be hemorrhage. He's holding on to whatever fluid he can, but it's not enough of the fluids are needed. But those those cell lines look scary to me. And you throw out a number of thirty percent before you at thirty percent blood yeah. before you see shock. I love rules of thumb, and one of my favorite rules of thumb tell me gauge how much blood was lost was 10, 20, 30. 10% blood loss makes you tachycardic. 20% makes you worth the static. 30% makes you pass out hypertension. So uh, I, I was happy to hear uh, 20 years after my information, <laughs> then rule of thumb of 30% yeah. still sticking around. And right, that makes you worry that this guy is losing, has lost a lot of blood, mm -hmm. passed out. And we're, we're worried that it's going to keep dropping as you add more fluid and maybe he's still bleeding. You know, I, I think one of the things that we hit on, and I really want to emphasize this because I think it's such an important point is treating the patient rather than just treating the number. I think you guys picked up on this. Even if the hemoglobin isn't necessarily below six, we know that the patient is in shock. And we know that in this case, giving blood may help help the patient, especially with the perfusion status. We know their lactate is at 2.1. So really focusing on how we can help the patient, I think you hit up on this very well. And so I, I'm really glad to see that. And it's great, great work. So one of the things I'd love to ask is, Based on these labs and based on this information, how does this affect your differential? What are you thinking about? What do you think might be causing this hemorrhagic shock generally? One of the things, especially with learning more about the Billy Roth procedure, is could there be a surgical complication? I'm thinking a little less of that, though, just because of the time frame. That's more of an intuition. From all we've gotten so far, it, I would feel, yeah, definitely more narrows towards thinking some sort of relation to the peptic ulcer disease causing the bleeding. I think we've talked about esophageal varices, you know, I mean, with no history of alcohol use, so pretty much the non-abdominal exam, no skin findings. I think that's less likely. Also, the Mallory Weiss tear. I think we would expect the mediastinum to be a bit more widened on the chest x-ray. Mm -hmm. also, that's more associated with alcohol use. So I think peptic ulcer disease-related causes the highest in the differential at this point. So next steps, are you going to go looking for peptic ulcer disease? Would you do, do a scope? Yeah. Would you, would be safe to do that? That's, that would be my only concern if like, it's safe to do that. But I think that would be the best way to probably visualize it. Right. I know outpatient, there's a couple other options with the re breath test. What's, there's two other ones. Oh, the like stool test. That, yeah, that would let you know if there's H. pylori, but I don't think it would tell you much about what's you know, yeah, and going yeah, on inside the stomach mucosa. Good point. So probably upper GI scope, I think, is probably what I would do next. Yep. You guys should continue to work together. <laughs> when you go into residency, you guys are very effective at working these. I want to comment on intuition. Intuition is undersold in medicine. I just call it street smarts. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's been 30 years since this guy had that procedure. It would be on for 30 years to pass and so there's a bit of a complication. Uh, that way you kind of put it. Yeah. And kind of going back to the, the must-not-miss diagnoses and everything that's on your differential, you know, the upper endoscopy would help you to see if there is peptic ulcer disease, but, you know, you don't want to wait around for a urinary breath test in the emergency room. You want to be 100% certain that there are esophageal varices too, right? Yeah. So that's a great next step. So I actually think this is a great point to pause and do a quick teaching point. Just on our approach to upper GI bleeds, one of our one of the podcasts that we often also ascribe to is the clinical problem solvers. They have a wonderful framework for upper GI bleeds. Love clinical problem solvers. Yeah. You mentioned 
some of the most common causes of abertia bleed. We know peptic ulcer disease, esophageal varices, esophagitis. But just thinking about things from an anatomic standpoint, Dr. Duane, you mentioned, because the GI system is so easily anatomically arranged, it's easy just to go proximal to distal and think about, okay, what is causing upper GI bleed? As I'm sure you all know, classifying upper GI bleeds is anything up to the ligament of trites. So we're thinking esophageal, you mentioned this, Mallory Weiss, there's a tumorous cameron lesions, black esophagus, gastric etiologies, gastritis, tumor, oral gastropathy, and small bowel, classically things, AVMs, tumor, enteroenteric fistulas, a lot of these things are a bit more esoteric and not as commonly seen, but I think the most common things you guys clearly picked up on, it's great to just keep in mind. The important questions that you both asked is, number one, is there a history of cirrhosis? Could that be con contributing to these symptoms? And number two, is there a potential aortoenteric fistula? Is there something that is causing this? Why is there, why are we seeing this constant blood in the upper GI tract? Great thoughts. I also love the fact that you picked up on, do we need to do, do, we need to do a scope for this patient? Is there something that we can see that can really help us figure out next steps. So with that being said, why don't we get to some, some images. So we did do an EGD, and really to summarize, in the esophagus, there was no evidence of esophageal varices. In the stomach, there was a moderate amount of blood. There were grade two gastric varices in the body of the stomach, none of which appeared to be actively bleeding. There were enlarged thickened folds that suggest portal gastropathy. The anastomoses showed no act, signs of active evidence, active evidence of bleeding. And the scope was introduced into the duodenum that showed no ulcers or masses there as well. So that's a lot of information. What are you guys thinking? So key thing I'm taking away here, there's blood in the stomach, but it's not entirely clear where that blood came from. There's not a huge ulcer yeah. listed yeah. here. Yeah. We thought maybe there would be. There are gastric varices, so that's likely the source, but yeah. that doesn't get to the question of why does he have gastric varices? So maybe we can pause here for a moment. What does Cornal gastropathy, what does that tell us? We have a new diagnosis for this patient now. Portal gastropathy. You don't hear that too often. Yeah. No. <laughs> I think this is the first time I've heard this. <laughs> so think of portal. You guys are both smart. I think, What do you yeah. think that could mean? So I think, so the gastric vein, I think, drain into the portal vein. So mm -hmm. I think this is maybe something where kind of there's portal hypertension, but like it's shunted towards the gastric veins. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. maybe I can take a moment and talk about that and then you can fill in. So I think talking just briefly about portal hypertension here uh -huh. is helpful. So what happens with portal hypertension is you have increased resistance in portal blood flow. So then you also get these increase in collaterals, which just makes everything worse and ultimately can cause hypotension and ascites. And there are a lot of different reasons why you would have portal hypertension. Any that you can think of that you may have learned about before. Um, kind of one classic association. Right. So one we talked about was cirrhosis. I can also think of heart failure. Yeah, right. Heart failure. Yeah. yeah. See that. Yeah. Maybe a, some some form of active process on the portal vein. You know, a malignancy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The right track for sure. And I know, Dan, you've got some more teaching points if you want to talk about those causes. Yeah. So, you know, I, I love that you guys are thinking about this anatomically. I think it, the easiest way to remember this stuff is to simplify it as much as possible, which you both are doing. The way that I think about this and the way, you know, Lauren, you explained it so well, just anatomically, we realize that blood drains through the, through the portal vein into the liver and then ultimately out the hepatic vein and to the right side of the right heart for social circulation. And as you both mentioned, you can have issues at any of these points, prehepatic, intrahepatic, post-hepatic. And just to summarize some of the things that you have already mentioned, 
when we're thinking about prehepatic causes, you mentioned, is there an issue with the portal vein? Is there perhaps a thrombosis? Is there an issue in another vein that drains into the portal vein? When we're thinking about intrahepatic, you guys both mentioned cirrhosis. Commonly, we see potentially schistosomiasis, which is something that I personally never <laughs> yeah, seen, yeah. but apparently the literature can often present with this intrahepatic <laughs> portal hypertension. And of course, you both mentioned causes of post-hepatic, right heart failure. Is there a tricuspid valve issue that's just causing blood to just be backed up? But Chiari, things just to think about. And I love that you guys are really categorizing this into different systems to help you figure out, okay, what could be contributing to this? Based on all of this information, at this point, it's still kind of nebulous as to, all right, which category are we and what are we dealing with? Is there anything that you think might be helpful to parse out which category this patient might be uh, experiencing? LFTs for one. LFTs would be useful in an echocardiogram okay. to check the heart function. You can ultrasound the liver also. Yeah. Do that. Yeah, some sort of imaging of the abdomen. What in the abdomen in particular are you looking at? Portal vein flow. Portal vein. We talked about the liver. Anything else you'd want to look at? IVC. Um, IVC. Okay. Remember we saw that diaphragm. Yeah. What were we concerned about? Any organs in that underneath that left side that you think might be squeamed? <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. And I know you right. also mentioned earlier on about potentially getting a CT abdomen pelvis. Yeah. Right? Just some things to think about. Oh, you know what? I, th I think we, we can get you that information. <laughs> so we did a liver ultrasound with Doppler that was normal. Okay. We also did a splenic ultrasound with Doppler. And just to summarize, we are seeing the spleen is diffusely enlarged with a lobulated contour. It is dilated of quick measurements, 10 centimeters in craniocaudal and 11 centimeters in the transverse dimension. Which is big. Significantly yeah. longer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yes. And we're seeing in the splenic hilum what looks like a rounded hypoechoic focus that seems to be within the spleen. It does not appear to represent a fluid collection, an abscess or a hematoma, because there is a vessel seen running through this region. You didn't get to actually examine the patient, but let's hope that they felt something yeah. really <laughs> A little bit firm on that left side. Uh huh. Yeah. And I think in, in this particular image, it, it's you can see how much the kidney is pushed down because of how big the spleen oh, is. Oh, yeah. Wow. You can That's see how that pretty is. striking. Exactly, exactly. So you mentioned something that's going on with the spleen. Yeah. Spleen is definitely a bit larger than that we would expect. Guys, I feel we're getting close. So you got this huge spleen and all these other signs to support you're on the trail towards you know, getting to this point. But a normal liver. Yeah. What's that about? I mean, I think everything we learn is, you know, the spleen gets big because yeah. portal hypertension from cirrhosis. Yeah. But there's no physical sign of the cirrhosis. The liver looks fine on ultrasound, looks fine on MRI. Yeah. I mean, probably some trilective type picture going on to cause the gastric portal gastric varices. Yeah. Right. Possibly because of just the complication of the surgery. Could and, be that. I, I mean, mean I they're also, moving around a lot it, of stuff for the Bellaroth procedure, but that's possibly an abnormal vessel connection that forms. But also, I'm wondering, like, I learned earlier about the malt lymphoma. I don't exactly know how that presents, but I know something you can often see malignancy involving the liver, or sorry, involving the spleen, because the blood cells go and are filtered there. So that would be something I would look more into potentially. So just taking a step back, good, good thoughts. Let's, let's, let's assume that we also got an echo for this patient uh -huh. and it showed appropriate right heart function, no signs of tricuspid regurg. What category do you think you would place this patient in? Would you think this is a prehepatic, intrahepatic, posthepatic, particularly if we are seeing a liver that looks pretty normal on imaging, but a spleen that's just way out of, way out of proportion? 
put it scientifically, it's huge. Yeah, <laughs> it's big. I say pre prehepatic. Pre yeah, 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 definitely. I, I think it's so important, and we both did to realize. Liver's fine, but something must be going on distal to this that's causing just a whole host of symptoms. Any thoughts on what might lead to potential prehepatic causes of portal hypertension? You, you actually mentioned a few of these already. Yeah, the tumor, tumor burden, sure. obstruction, yeah. What else can obstruct things? If you have an abscess, perhaps. How about with the vasculature? If you have an aneurysm that's compressing. Mm -hmm. There's some areas on this MRI that are kind of lit up too. Hmm. Looks to be in the vascular. Amplifications. Potential. Sometimes maybe things that flow aren't right. flowing. Okay. Could be embolus as well. Oh, a blood clot or something. Could could be oh. a clot. Yeah. yeah. Well, or a thrombotic. Like yeah. Thrombotic. Yeah. Right. But I think you both are on the right track. Something must be obstructing the passage of, of blood. And so you're having this ballooning of the spleen, yeah. even yeah. with a normal liver, liver appearance. So with that, let's actually get into the read of the MRA. So we are seeing complete and chronic thrombosis of the distal portion mm. within a pen proximal 2.5 centimeters of the splenic vein. So what we are seeing in this case, you both mentioned is there is some kind of an obstruction for this patient who was a chronic thrombosis of the splenic vein. And you both mentioned the splenic vein drains into the portal vein, enters into the liver, out to the hepatic vein. And so if you have the block blockage at the splenic vein, the spleen is just going to balloon up and distal to that, the liver is going to look totally fine. So I think a, a good learning point is just to pause and really look into what a splenic vein thrombosis is, is all about. So most common etiologies, classically we think of pancreatitis. And we know this because the splenic vein actually runs along the posterior surface of the pancreas. So when you have this inflammation in pancreatitis, it can lead to thrombosis. Other things, masses, like you mentioned, cancer, mucinosis, adenocarcinoma, splenic vein stenosis, posterior gastric ulcers. Mm -hmm. I just included this picture here on, on the side just to kind of show what these varices look for different pathologies. But one thing I really wanted to highlight is, aside from these different etiologies, patients can be in a hypercoagulable state that could lead to these thrombotic episodes. So I've just summarized a couple of the different hypercoagulable states that we can see. Most of this is, I'm sure you all know all these, so I won't go too deep into any of these, but inherited causes, common hypercoagulable inherited causes, factor V laden, protein CNS deficiency, antithrombin 3 deficiency, acquired causes, different types of cancer, HIT, also PCV, Waldenstrom. So just things to keep in mind, just so, so we're aware moving forward. I love when people tell me, I'm sure you know this, and then give me the answer. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I have an answer. But there's something that the beautiful part of this case so far is that things are really adding up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we talked a lot about cirrhosis, and we talked about esophageal varices. There were no esophageal varices. Yeah. And suddenly the anatomy here explains gastric varices, isolated gastric varices, suggest an issue with the splenic vein, and it could be, as we kind of came to, intravascular clot or something extravascular compressing. And that could be inflammation, a mass, something like that. Yeah. And now we're figuring out why in the heck does this gentleman have yes. a splenic yeah. vein thrombosis? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But everything else yeah. is explained now. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of remarkable. I mean, you've got to save the guy's life. But diagnostically, we're down to the essential question here is why does this guy have a clot in his, in his splenic vein? Yeah. Occam's razor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens to the gentleman. So he is transfused to maintain hemoglobin. Great job and surgery is consulted for an urgent splenectomy. Okay, now, as you're doing this, as, as the great medical team that you are, you to take a look into his hospital records, and you see that previous hospital records show a hemoglobin of 20. 
and the patient history is notable for erythromyalgia. So just to, just to summarize, this is burning paresthesias, headaches, weakness, dizziness, itching after a warm bath, hyperhidrosis. Does this suggest anything to you? Polycythema vera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's bad. So the computer generated audience applause. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because when this patient presented, we're seeing a really low hemoglobin of, of eight after fluids, but we're seeing from the history, there's a hemoglobin of 20. And so you're absolutely right. The underlying diagnosis for this patient is this polycythemia vera that we're seeing from, especially the patient's history and a lot of the symptoms that he was experiencing. You know, whenever somebody says something's pathognomonic in modern era, you should worry that it's not pathognomonic, <laughs> but erythromyalgia is pathognomonic for either polycythemia vera and hemoglobins that are usually over 16, but more likely 18 to 20, or essential thrombocytosis, thrombocytosis with platelet counts over 400,000. So it strikes me or concerns me that a hemoglobin of 20 and symptoms of erythromyalgia weren't on his past medical history and a diagnosis wasn't given to this gentleman earlier. It just means he probably didn't need a lot of care. Maybe in the 90s, it hadn't manifested yet, yeah. just part of the disease. So that's right. really striking. And wow. it actually makes you terrified of a hemoglobin A. Wow. You see hemoglobin yeah. A all the time. Mm -hmm. But for somebody to pass out from hemoglobin A, it means it happened really fast or they started at 20. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You just kind of alluded to that earlier. You're, based on the history, you're expecting it to be a lower number. Yeah. But Patient exactly, which is why it's also great that you didn't wait for the hemoglobin to get to that. <laughs> yeah. Excellent, excellent work, excellent work. Yeah, exactly. And another, you know, step pearl anytime a patient on a step exam is itchy after a bath or a shower. <laughs> there it is. You already know it's polycythemia vera. So. Nice, great work. Yeah, so just a, just a few quick learning points about polycythemia vera. We touched on a, a few of these points. Classically, the hemoglobin is greater than 16.5 or, or 16. Patients often have JAK2 mutations. As I'm sure you know, polycythemia vera, we have a low erythropoietin levels, but we have an extremely high level of hemoglobin. And often for these patients there, we do see pretty commonly venous and arterial thrombosis, which kind of fits what we're seeing for this current patient. And there's a higher incidence of GI complaints and peptic ulcer disease that can be seen on endoscopy. So I'd love to get your your opinions on potential treatments for polycythemia vera. Anything that you can think of that might be helpful for these patients? I think, I mean, one option would be some sort of atomophoresis or try to take out some of the blood to reduce hemoglobin. But I, I don't know what the frequency you'd need to do that and if that's sustainable for the rest of the yep. patient's life. But that's would be one option. Great. Yeah. But yeah, it's fantastic. So in fact, the, the treatment that has the best overall survival is in fact phlebotomy. Oh. It, it has been shown, particularly for patients who have that significant polycythemia vera, phlebotomy is kind of the mainstay, one of the main things that we got to focus on. Another therapy that has been shown to be particularly efficacious is hydroxyurea. It's shown to reduce the risk of thrombosis when, compared to just phlebotomy by itself. Mm. And then of course, for these patients, we also have aspirin, 81 milligrams. Something that may you may remember from step one is with the potential jack tyrosine kinase mutations, there are specific medications, ruxolitinib, I don't know if yeah, that rings yeah. any bells, that specifically target the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. But really, if for both for patients, kind of the mainstay therapy, phlebotomy, hydroxyurea, and make sure they're on aspirin to avoid thrombosis. Cool. This patient's unfortunately phlebotomized himself by hemorrhage. <laughs> Pass -pass 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 -pass. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right now, you don't order a treatment of phlebotomy. Absolutely. <laughs> that would make things worse. But... Excellent work, guys. So honestly, as we kind of take a step back and look over the entire case and kind of what's been unfolding, 
You mentioned that initially the patient presented with syncope. You noted that this is potentially in the setting of hematemesis. You noted that there are different causes of a potential upper GI bleed, but you really narrowed in on, could this be in the setting of this peptic ulcer disease? Is there a potential varices? You worked between different causes of upper GI bleeds. You narrowed in on a gastric variceal bleed. You made sure that you evaluated all different organ systems. You found the splenic vein thrombosis, and you had found the polycythemia vera that was underlying this entire condition. So round of applause to both of you. You guys did a phenomenal thing. Good work, Dallas. Excellent. Nice job, Nathan. Awesome. That was a wild case. That was <laughs> no, incredible, man. So many twists and turns. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah, and then you reflect the journey. Oh, man. I guess, yeah. Keep, keep on hunting. <laughs> don't, don't stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because yeah, we kept on turning over the new leaves, yeah. not every step. And so also, yeah. Yeah, just, yeah. How the final destination we got to is, you know, I wasn't necessarily thinking about polycythemia there at the beginning, but you I was definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I'd throw in it that you guys really thought through the acuity of syncope uh -huh. and got on this person was sick and this would be a hemorrhage early on, which is essential. And then the main differential from a learning standpoint is upper GI bleed. Yep. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what you really want to take away from how to approach that fat hematemesis is what's the source and. H. pylori, NSAIDs, varices, Mallory West, that's the differential really take away. Polycythemia, we, we learn about it in med school, it's rare. And it's funny that it's common to clot, but they present with bleeding. So there is trickiness to this case. Yeah. And maybe one other pearl that we spent a little bit of time on in different sections of the case discussion is people that clot in unusual places need a workup yeah. versus people with lower extremity DVTs. Then you can start to think of that Burkhaus triad of Maybe it was immobility or being bed bound. Maybe it was their cancer and they had you know, inflammation. But if they've got a clot in their splenic vein, they got bud chiari, they present with arterial clots. You go through the hypercoagula workup and that differential that you put up there, Daniel had PCV on it. So as soon as he's got that clot in a usual place, you start sniffing around for things like this. Great job, guys. Yeah. Wow. Something else that's interesting is this patient had peptic ulcer disease in the 90s. So, PCV usually presents in 60s, this patient's in his late 60s. So are those things related? Mm. Are they not related? Was that early mm. symptom or was it just people have peptic ulcer disease? Yeah. And he had both right. things, you know, right. we, right. I guess we'll never know, but I think it's yeah. an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. With the bleeding, so when we did the scope, we didn't see any active bleeding from the varices. So that's what I'm wondering is how long ago did that bleed? We're assuming it bled from the varices. How long ago did the bleeding happen from the varices before when we actually That's saw this? That's such a great question. And one of the things that happens when you have a bleeding vessel is if you lose a bunch of blood, the vessels deflate. Um, so it fixed itself through a bad means. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not unusual that people hemorrhage yeah. from a vessel. By the time you go, look, you don't see anymore because they oh. lost that much blood that the vessel actually oh. decompressed itself. And then sometimes you just can't see everything. Yeah. The gastric body's got folds in it. Right. And they might not easily identify it. So that's a, that's a very great, that's a really good question. All right. Thank you, Nathan and Al, for joining us. Thanks, Dr. Ndwania, for joining us. Congrats again to Dan and Lauren. So well-deserved. So happy for both of them. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thanks for having us. It was a blast. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. We'll see you next time.